Chapter Twenty, Part Three of My Life on the Plains. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. These Mosita examined carefully, then shattering them between two stones the condition of the marrow seemed a point of particular importance to her as tending to determine the length of time the bones had been lying on the camp after many minutes spent in this examination during which i accompanied her a silent but far from disinterested spectator she apparently like a judge who had been carefully reviewing all the evidence gave me her conclusions communicating with me through the medium of the sign language with a grace characteristic of the indian race and which added to the interest of her statements briefly summed up her conclusions were as follows twelve lodges had encamped at that point probably constituting the band of some petty chief the different members of which like the ones whose trail we had that day discovered had been separated for the purpose of hunting but had been called together at that point preparatory to joining the main village the lodges had left this camp not to exceed two weeks previous to that date and in all probability had moved to the rendezvous appointed for the main tribe which would without doubt be found by other small bands from time to time until the village would all be assembled at one point moving in this manner and at this early season of the year when the grass was scarce and no enemy known to be in the country the indians would make very short moves each day passing merely from one stream to another not accomplishing in one day a greater distance probably than the cavalry would in two or three hours this intelligence of course was most gratifying and for encouragement was soon communicated to the individual members of the command the trail was found to lead almost in a northerly direction slightly inclining to the east perhaps no one of the command experienced such a feeling of hope and anxious suspense as the new discoveries gave rise to in the breast of young brewster who now more than ever believed that with reason too that he was soon to unravel or forever seal the fate of his lost sister whose discovery and release had been the governing impulses of his life for months past with renewed interest the cavalry resumed the pursuit at daylight the following morning we had marched but a few miles before we reached a second camping-ground which had been occupied not only by those whose trail we were then following but the number of fires showed that the strength of the indians had been increased by about twenty-five lodges thus verifying the correctness of the surmises advanced by monacita continuing our progress we had the satisfaction of seeing still further accessions to the trail until it was evident that at least one hundred lodges had united and passed in one body on the trail as we marched in one day over the distance passed over in three by the indians and as the latter were moving unsuspicious of the presence of an enemy in that section of the country the trail was becoming freshened as we advanced that night we encamped with every precaution calculated to conceal our presence from the indians no fires were permitted until after dark and then but small ones for fear the quick and watchful eye of the indian might detect the ascending columns of smoke as soon as the men had prepared their suppers the fires were put out 
In the morning breakfast was prepared before daylight, and the fires at once smothered by heaping damp earth over them. Resuming the pursuit as soon as it was sufficiently light to follow the trail, we soon arrived at the camp vacated by the Indians the previous day, the extent of which showed that from three to four hundred lodges of Indians had occupied the ground. In many places the decayed embers of the lodge fires were still glowing, while the immense quantity of young cottonwood timber found cut and lying throughout the camp stripped of its young bark showed that the Indian ponies were being mainly subsisted on cottonwood bark, the spring grass not being sufficient to advance to answer that purpose. Nothing indicated that the Indians had departed in a precipitate manner, or that they had discovered our approach. It was reasonable, therefore, to suppose that we would come in contact with them that day, if not actually reach the village. All of our plans were made accordingly. The Osages, as usual, were kept in the advance that their quick eyes might the sooner discover the Indians should they appear in our front. In order to avail myself of the earliest information, I, with Colonel Cook, accompanied the Osages. Two of the latter kept in advance of all, and as they neared the ridge or commanding piece of ground, they would cautiously approach the crest on foot and peer beyond, to ascertain whether an enemy was in sight before exposing our party to discovery. This proceeding, a customary one with the Indians, did not excite unusual attention upon the part of Colonel Cook or myself, until once we saw Hardrope, the head warrior, who was in advance, slowly ascend a slight eminence in our front, and after casting one glimpse beyond, descend the hill and return to us as rapidly as his pony could carry him. We almost anticipated his report, so confident was everyone in the command that we were going to overtake the village. In a few words, Hardrope informed us that less than a mile beyond the hill from which we had obtained a view, there was in plain sight a large herd of Indian ponies grazing, being herded and driven by a few Indian boys. As yet they had not seen us, but were liable to discover the column of troops further to the rear. To judge of the situation, I dismounted and, conducted by hard rope, advanced to the crest of the hill, in front, and looked beyond. There I saw in plain sight a herd of ponies, numbering perhaps two hundred, and being driven in the opposite direction toward what seemed the valley of the stream, as I could see the tops of the forest trees which usually border the water courses. The ponies and their protectors soon disappeared from view, but whether they had discovered us yet or not I was unable to determine. Sending a messenger back as rapidly as his horse could carry him, I directed the troops to push to the front and to come prepared for action. I knew the village must be near at hand, probably in the vicinity of the trees seen in the distance. As a country was perfectly open, free from either ravines or timber capable of affording concealment to Indians, I took my orderly with me and galloped in advance in the direction taken by the Indians, leaving Colonel Cook to hasten and direct the troops as the latter should arrive. After advancing about halfway to the bluff overlooking the valley, I saw about a half a dozen Indian heads peering over the crest, evidently watching my movements. 
This number was soon increased to upwards of fifty. I was extremely anxious to satisfy myself as to the tribe whose village was evidently near at hand. There was but little doubt that it was the Cheyennes from whom we had been searching. If this should prove true, the two white girls whose discovery and release from captivity had been one of the objects of the expedition must be held prisoners in the village which we were approaching, and to effect their release unharmed then became my study, for I remembered the fate of the white woman and child held captive by a band of the same tribe in the Battle of the Washita. I knew that the first shot fired on either side would be the signal for the murder of the two white girls. While knowing the Cheyennes to be deserving of castigation, and feeling assured that they were almost in our power, I did not dare to imperil the lives of the two white captives by making an attack on the village, although never before or since have we seen so favorable an opportunity for administering well-merited punishment to one of the strongest and most troublesome of the hostile tribes. Desiring to establish a truce with the Indians before the troops should arrive, I began making signals inviting a conference. This was done by simply riding in a circle and occasionally advancing toward the Indians on the bluff in a zigzag manner. Immediately there appeared on the bluffs about twenty mounted Indians. From this group three advanced toward me at a gallop, soon followed by the others of the party. I cast my eyes behind me to see if the troops were near, but the head of the column was still a mile or more in the rear. My orderly was near me, and I could see Colonel Cook rapidly approaching about midway between the column and my position. Directing the orderly to remain stationary, I advanced toward the Indians a few paces, and as soon as they were sufficiently near, made signs to them to halt, and then for but one of their number to advance midway to meet me. This was assented to, and I advanced with my revolver in my left hand while my right hand was left aloft, as a token that I was inclined to be friendly. The Indian met me as agreed upon, and in response to my offer exchanged friendly greetings and shook hands. From him I learned that the village of the entire Cheyenne tribe was located on the stream in front of us, and that Medicine Arrow, the head chief of the Cheyennes was in the group of Indians then in view from where we stood. Little Robe, with his band numbering about forty lodges, was a short distance further down the stream. I asked the Indian to send for Medicine Arrow, as I desired to talk with the head chief. Calling to one of his companions who had halted within hailing distance, the latter was directed to convey to Medicine Arrow my message to do which he set off at a gallop. At this juncture I perceived that the Indians, to the number of twenty or more, had approached quite near, while some of the parties seemed disposed to advance to where I was. To this I had decided objections, and so indicated to the Indian who was with me. He complied with my wishes and directed his companions to remain where they were. As a precaution of safety, I took good care to keep the person of the Indian between me and his friends. Medicine Arrow soon came galloping up, accompanied by a chief. 
while engaging in shaking hands with him and his companions and exchanging the usual salutation how with the new arrivals i observed that the indians who had been occupying a retired position had joined the group and i found myself in the midst of about twenty chiefs and warriors medicine arrow exhibited the most earnest desire to learn from me the number of troops following me whether this question was prompted by any contemplated act of treachery in case my followers were few in number or not i do not know but if treachery was thought of the idea was abandoned when i informed him that my followers numbered fifteen hundred men the advance guard being in their sight medicine arrow then informed me that his village was near by and that the women and children would be greatly excited and alarmed by the approach of so large a body of troops to give assurances to them he urged me to accompany him to his village in advance of the troops and by my presence satisfy his people that no attack upon them would be made this i consented to do by this time colonel cook had again joined me also dr lippincott leaving the doctor with directions for the troops and taking colonel cook with me i started with medicine arrow and a considerable party of his warriors to the village medicine arrow urging us to put our horses to the gallop the reader may regard this movement on my part as having been anything but prudent and i will admit that viewed in the ordinary light that it might seem to partake somewhat of a foolhardy errand but i can assure them that no one could be more thoroughly convinced of the treachery and bloodthirsty disposition of the indian than i am nor would i ever trust life in their hands except it was to their interest to preserve that life for no class of beings acts so much from self-interest as the indian and on this occasion i knew before accepting the proposal of the chief to enter his village that he and every member of his band felt it would be to their greatest interest not only to protect me from harm but treat me with every consideration as the near approach of the troops and the formidable number of the latter would deter the indians from any act of hostility knowing as they did that in case of an outbreak of any kind it would be impossible for a great portion of the village particularly the women and children to escape i considered all this before proceeding to the village as we turned our horses heads in the direction of the village i caught sight of a familiar face in the group of indians about me it was that of mawissa the squaw whom i had sent as a peace commissioner from our camp near fort sill and who failed to return she recognized me at once and laughed when i uttered the word mutaka referring to the hunting knife i had loaned her as she was about to depart on her errand of peace a brisk gallop soon brought us to the village which was located beneath the trees on the bank of a beautiful stream of clear running water the name of the latter i found to be the sweetwater it is one of the tributaries of the red river and is indicated on the map as crossing the one hundredth meridian not far south of the canadian river medicine arrow hurried me to his lodge which was located almost in the centre of the village the latter being the most extensive i had ever seen 
As soon as I had entered the lodge, I was invited to a seat on one of the many buffalo robes spread on the ground about the inner circumference of the lodge. By Medicine Arrow's direction, the village crier, in a loud tone of voice, began calling the chiefs together in council. No delay occurred in their assembling. One by one they approached and entered the lodge until fifteen of the leading chiefs had taken their seats in the circle within the lodge in the order of their rank. I was assigned the post of honor, being seated on the right of Medicine Arrow, while on my immediate right sat the medicine man of the tribe, an official scarcely second in influence to the head chief. The squaw of Medicine Arrow built a huge fire in the center of the lodge, as soon as all the chiefs had assembled, the ceremonies, which were different from any I had ever witnessed before or since, began. The chiefs sat in silence while the medicine man drew forth from a capricious buckskin tobacco pouch, profusely ornamented with beads and porcupine quills, a large red clay pipe with a stem about the size of an ordinary walking stick. From another buckskin pouch which hung at his girdle, he drew forth a handful of kinnikinick and placed it on a cloth spread on the ground before him. To this he added, in various amounts, dried leaves and herbs with which he seemed well supplied. After thoroughly mixing these ingredients, he proceeded with solemn ceremony to fill the pipe with the mixture, muttering at times certain incantations by which no doubt it was intended to neutralize any power or proclivity for harm I may have been supposed to possess. To all this I was a silent but far from disinterested spectator. My interest perceptibility increased when the medicine man who was sitting close to me extended his left hand and grasped my right, pressing it strongly against his body over the region of his heart, at the same time and with complete devoutness of manner engaged in what seemed to me a petition of prayer to the great spirit the other chiefs from time to time ejaculating in the most earnest manner their responses the latter being made simultaneously to the indians it was a most solemn occasion and scarcely less impressive to me who could only judge of what was transpiring by catching an occasional word and by closely following their signs after the conclusion of the address or prayer by the medicine man the latter released my hand which up to this time had been tightly grasped in his and taking the long clay pipe in both hands it likewise was apparently placed under an imaginary potent spell by a ceremony almost as long as that which i have just described this being ended, the medicine man first pointing slowly with the stem of the pipe to each of the four points of the compass, turned to me, and without even so much as saying, Smoke, sir, placed the mouthpiece of the long stem in my mouth, still holding the bowl of the pipe in his hand. Again taking my right hand in his left, the favor of protecting influence of the great spirit was again invoked in the most earnest and solemn manner, the other chiefs joining at regular intervals with their responses. Finally, releasing my hand, the medicine man lighted a match and applied it to the pipe, made signs to me to smoke. A desire to conform as far as practicable to the wishes of the Indians, and a curiosity to study a new and interesting phase of an Indian character, prompted me to obey the direction of the medicine man, 
and accordingly I began puffing away with a greater degree of nonchalance as a man unaccustomed to smoking could well assume. Now, being, as I have just stated, one of the class which does not number smoking among its accomplishments, I took the first few whiffs with a degree of confidence which I felt justify in assuming, as I imagined the smoking portion of the ceremony was to be the same as usually observed among Indians so devoted to the practice, in which each individual takes the pipe, enjoys half a dozen whiffs, and passes it to his next neighbor on the left. That much I felt equal to, but when, after blowing away the first half dozen puffs of smoke from my face, the medicine man still retained his hold of the pipe with an evident desire that I should continue the enjoyment of this Indian luxury, I proceeded more deliberately, although no such rule of restraint seemed to govern the volubility of the medicine man, whose invocation and chants continued with unabated vigor and rapidity. When the first minute had added itself to four more, I still was expected to make a miniature volcano of myself, minus the ashes. I began to grow solicitous as to what might be the effect I was subjected to in this course of treatment. I pictured myself as the commander of an important expedition seated in a solemn council, with a score and a half of dusky chieftains, the pipe of peace being passed, and before it had left the hands of the aforesaid commander, he became deathly sick, owing to the lack of familiarity with the noxious weed or its substitutes. I imagine the sudden termination of the council, the absurdity of the figure cut, and the contempt of the chiefs for one who must, under the circumstances, appear so deficient in manly accomplishments. These and a hundred similar ideas flashed through my mind as I kept pulling vigorously at the pipe, and wondering when this thing would terminate. Fortunately for my peace of body as well as mind, after a period which seemed to me to equal a quarter of an hour at least, I felt relieved by the medicine man taking the pipe from my mouth and, after refilling it, handed it to the head chief, sitting on my left, who was drawing three or four long, silent whiffs, passed it to his next neighbor, on his left, and in similar manner it made the circle of the chiefs, until it finally returned to the medicine man, who, after taking a few final whiffs, laid it aside, much to my relief, as I feared the consequences of a repetition of my former effort. Romeo the interpreter, having been mounted upon an indifferent animal, had fallen to the rear of the column during the march that day, and I was deprived of his services during my interview with the chief. Colonel Cook during this time was in an adjoining lodge, each moment naturally becoming more solicitous, lest upon the arrival of the troops there should be a collision between the Indians and the excited volunteers. To the inquiries of the chiefs I explained the object of our march, without alluding to the two captive girls, the time not having arrived for discussing that subject. Having resolved to obtain the release of the captives, all other purposes were necessarily laid aside, and as I knew that the captives could not be released should hostilities once occur between the troops and Indians, I became for the time being an ardent advocate of peace measures, and informed the chiefs that such was my purpose at the time. 
I also requested them to inform me where I would find the most suitable camping ground in the vicinity of the village, to which request Medicine Arrow replied that he would accompany me in person and point out the desired ground. When this offer was made, I accepted it as a kindness, but when the chief conducted me to a campground separated from the village and from all view of the latter, I had reason to modify my opinion of his pretended kindness, particularly when it coupled with his subsequent conduct. My command soon came up and was conducted to the campground indicated by Medicine Arrow, the distance between the camp and the village not exceeding three-fourths of a mile. I was still uncertain as to whether there were any grounds to doubt that the two white girls were captives in Medicine Arrow's village. I anxiously awaited the arrival of Monacita, who could and would solve this question. She came with the main body of the troops, and I at once informed her whose village it was alongside of which we were located. To my inquiry as whether the two white girls were prisoners in Medicine Arrow's village, she promptly replied in the affirmative, and at the same time exhibited a desire to aid as far as possible in effecting their release. It was still early in the afternoon, and I did not deem it necessary or even advisable to proceed with undue haste in the negotiations by which I expected to bring about the release of the two captives. Although our camp, as already explained, was cut off from a view of the village, yet I had provided against either surprise or stratagem by posting some of my men on prominent points nearby from which they obtained a full view of both our camp and the village, and thus rendered it impossible for any important movement to take place in the latter without being seen, I felt confident that as soon as it was dark the entire village would probably steal away and leave us in the lurch, but I proposed to make my demand for the surrender of the captives long before darkness should aid the Indians in eluding us. From fifty to one hundred chiefs, warriors, and young men were assembled at my headquarters and about the campfire built in front of headquarters. Apparently they were there from motives of mere curiosity, but later developments proved that they had another object in view. Finally, Medicine Arrow came to my camp accompanied by some of his head men, and, after shaking hands with apparent cordiality, stated that some of his young men, desirous of manifesting their friendships for us, would visit our camp in a few minutes and entertain us by a serenade. This idea was a novel one to me, and I awaited the arrival of the serenaders with no little curiosity. Before their arrival, however, my lookouts reported unusual commotion and activity in the Indian village. The herd of the latter had been called in, and officers sent by me to investigate this matter confirmed the report, and added that everything indicated a contemplated flight on the part of the Indians. I began then to comprehend the object of the proposed serenade. It was to occupy our attention while the village could pack up and take flight. Pretending ignorance of what was transpiring in the village, I continued to converse through Romeo with the chiefs until the arrival of the Indian musicians. These, numbering about a dozen young men, were mounted on ponies, which, like themselves, were ornamented in the highest degree, according to Indian fashion. The musicians were feathered and painted in the most horrible as well as fantastic manner, 
Their instruments consisted of reeds, the sound from which more nearly resembled those of the fife than any other, although there was a total lack of harmony between the various pieces. As soon as the musicians arrived, they began riding in a gallop in a small circle, of which circle our little group, composed of a few officers and the chiefs, composed the center. The display of horsemanship was superb and made amends for the discordant sounds given forth as the music. During all times, reports continued to come in, leaving no room to doubt that the entire village was preparing to decamp. To have opposed this movement by a display of force of the part of the troops would have only precipitated a terrible conflict, from which I was not yet prepared, keeping in mind the rescue of the white girls. I did not propose, however, to relinquish the advantage we then had by our close proximity to the village and permit the latter to place several miles between us. Knowing that the musicians would soon depart, and with them perhaps the chiefs and warriors, then grouped about my campfire, I determined to seize the principal chiefs then present, permit the village to depart if necessary, and hold the captive chiefs as hostages for the surrender of the white girls and the future good behavior of the tribe. This was a move requiring not only promptness, but the most delicate and careful handling, in order to avoid bloodshed. Quietly passing the word to a few of the officers who sat near me around the campfire, I directed them to leave the group one by one, and in such manner as not to attract the attention of the Indians, proceed to their companies, and select quickly some of their most reliable men, instructing the latter to assemble around and near my campfire, while armed as if merely attracted there by the Indian serenade. The men thus selected were to come singly, appear to be unconcerned as possible, and be in readiness to act promptly, but to do nothing without orders from me. In this manner, about one hundred of my men were, in an unconceivably short space of time, mingling with the Indians, who, to that number of forty or more, sat or stood about my campfire, laughing in their sleeves, had they not been Minus's appendages. No doubt at the clever dodge by which they were entertaining the white men while their village was hastening preparations for a speedy flight. When the musicians had apparently exhausted their program, they took their departure, informing us that later in the evening they would return and repeat the performance. They might have added with an entire change of program. After their departure, the conversation continued with the chiefs until, by glancing about me, I saw that a significant number of my men had mingled with the Indians to answer my purpose. Of the forty or more Indians in the group, there were but few chiefs, the majority being young men or boys. My attention was devoted to the chiefs, and acting upon the principle that for the purposes desired half a dozen would be as valuable as a half a hundred, I determined to seize the principal chiefs, then present and permit the others to depart. To do this without taking or losing life now became the problem. Indicating in a quiet manner to some of my men who were nearest to me to be ready to prevent the escape of three or four of the Indians whom I pointed out, I then directed Romeo to command silence on the part of the Indians and to inform them that I was about to communicate something of great importance to them. This was sufficient to attract their undivided attention. 
I then rose from my seat near the fire, and unbuckling my revolver from my waist, asked the Indians to observe that I threw my weapons upon the ground as an evidence that in what I was about to do I did not desire or propose to shed blood unless forced to do so. I then asked the chiefs to look about them and count the armed men who I had posted among and around them, completely cutting off every avenue of escape. They had attempted, under the pretense of a friendly visit to my camp, to deceive me, in order that their village might elude us, but their designs had been frustrated, and they were now in our power. I asked them to quietly submit to what was now inevitable, and promised them that if they and their people responded in the proper manner to the reasonable demands which I intended to make, all would be well, and they would be restored to their people. The reader must not imagine that this was listened to in tame silence by the thoroughly excited Indians, old and young. Upon the first intimation from me regarding the armed men, and before I could explain their purpose, every Indian who was dismounted sprang instantly to his feet, while those who were mounted gathered the reins of their ponies, all drew their revolvers or strung their bows, and for a few moments it seemed as if nothing could avert a collision, which could only terminate in the annihilation of the Indians, and an equal or perhaps greater loss on our part. A single shot fired, an indiscreet word uttered, would have been the signal to commence. My men behaved admirably, taking their positions in such a manner that each Indian was confronted by at least two white men. All this time the Indians were gesticulating and talking in the most excited manner, the boys and young men counseling resistance, the older men and chiefs urging prudence until an understanding could be had. The powers of Romeo as an interpreter were employed without stint in repeating to the chiefs my urgent appeals to restrain their young men and avoid bloodshed. Even at this date I recall no more exciting experience with Indians than the occasion of which I now write. Near me stood a tall, gray-haired chief who, while entreating his people to be discreet, kept his cocked revolver in his hand ready for use should the emergency demand it. He was one of the few whom I had determined to hold. Near him stood another, a most powerful and forbidding-looking warrior who was without firearms, but who was armed with a bow already strung and a quiver full of iron-pointed arrows. His coolness during this scene of danger and excitement was often the subject of remark afterward between the officers whose attention had been drawn to him. He stood apparently unaffected by the excitement about him, but not unmindful of the surrounding danger. Holding his bow in one hand with the other, he continued to draw from his quiver arrow after arrow. Each one he would examine as coolly as if he expected to engage it in target practice. First he would cast his eye along the shaft of the arrow to see if it was perfectly straight and true. Then he would with thumb and finger gently feel the point of the edge of the barbed head, returning to the quiver, each one whose condition did not satisfy him. In this manner he continued until he had selected perhaps half a dozen arrows with which he seemed satisfied and which he retained in his hand, while his quick eye did not permit a single incident about him to escape unnoticed. 
the noise of voices and the excitement increased until a movement began on the part of the indians who were mounted principally the young men and boys if the latter could be allowed to escape and the chiefs be retained the desired object would be gained suddenly a rush was made but for the fact that my men were ordered not to fire the attempt of the indians would not have been successful i as well as the other officers near me called upon the men not to fire the result was that all but four broke through the lines and made their escape the four detained however were those desired being chiefs and warriors of prominence forming my men about them in such impassable ranks that a glance was sufficient to show how futile all further efforts to escape would prove i then explained to the four captive indians that i knew the design under which they had visited our camp and i also knew that in their villages were held as captive two white girls whose release the troops were there to enforce and to effect their release as well as to compel the cheyennes to abandon the warpath and return to their reservation i had seized the four indians as hostages to prove my sincerity and earnest desire to arrange these matters amicably and without resort to force the indians were told that they might select one of their number whom i would release and send as a messenger of peace to the village the latter having left in indiscriminate flight as soon as the seizure of the chiefs was made it became a matter of great difficulty without the employment of forces to induce the four indians to give up their arms i explained to them that they were prisoners and it was one of our customs to disarm all men held as prisoners should they be released however i assured them their arms would be restored to them no argument could prevail upon them to relinquish their arms until i stated to them that a persistence in their refusal would compel me to summon a sufficient number of men to take the arms by force and it was even necessary to parade the men in front of them before the arms were finally given up after a lengthy conference with each other they announced that they had agreed upon one of their number who in accordance with my promise should be released and sent to the tribe as bearer of my demands and of any messages they might desire to send to their people i accordingly caused bountiful presents of coffee and sugar to be given to the one so chosen returned to him his pony and arms and entrusted him with verbal messages to his tribe the substance of which was as follows first i demanded the unconditional surrender of the two white girls held captive in the village hitherto surrenders of white captives by indians had only been made on payment of heavy ransom second i required the cheyenne village as an evidence of peaceable intentions and good faith on their part to proceed at once to their reservation and to locate near camp supply reporting to the military commander of that station third i sent a friendly message to little robe inviting him to visit me with a view to the speedy settlement of questions at issue promising him unmolested transit coming and returning for him as many of his people he chose to visit me in case of failure to comply with the first two of my demands hostilities would be continued and my command would at once commence the pursuit of the village which considering its size and the poor condition of the ponies at that early season of the year would be unable to escape from the cavalry the indian who was to go as bearer of these demands was also invited to return assured that whether the response of his people should prove favorable or not 
he should be granted a safe conduct between the camp and village inwardly congratulating himself no doubt upon the good fortune which gave him his liberty the messenger of peace or war as his tribe might elect took his departure for his village with him went the earnest wishes for success of every inmate of the camp but if this was a feeling of the command generally who can realize the intense interest and anxiety with which young brewster now awaited the result of this effort to secure the freedom of his sister and if the two forlorn helpless girls knew of the presence of troops of their own race what must have been the bitter despondency the painful relinquishment of all hopes as they saw the village and its occupants commencing a hasty flight and no apparent effort upon the part of the troops to effect their release what comfort it would have been to these ill-fated maidens could they have known before being hurried from the village of the steps already taken to restore them to home and friends or better still if one of them could have known that almost within the sound of her voice a brother was patiently but determinately biding the time that should restore his sister to his arms relying on the influence which i believe little robe would exert upon his people and knowing the pressure we were able to bring to bear through the three chiefs who were held hostage i felt confident that sooner or later the cheyennes would be forced to release the two white girls from their captivity placing a strong guard over the three chiefs and warning them not to attempt to escape if they valued their lives i returned to my tent after having ordered every comfort possible to be provided for our prisoners consistent with their position it was perhaps an hour or more after dark when an indian voice was heard calling from one of the hillcocks overlooking the camp End of chapter twenty part three